Coming up on Tech Nation, Andreas Weigand, former chief scientist at Amazon and author of Data for the People. He says who owns the data has to change. Then on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Marshall Summer, director of the Rare Disease Institute and chief of genetics and metabolism at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C. We talk about treating rare diseases in the very young and the efforts to support families, local pediatricians, and the patients themselves nationwide and around the world. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. We demand privacy when we don't have a problem, and we give it up fast when it benefits us. Case in point, each of us holds our medical records to be personal, and the laws of this country, specifically HIPAA, guarantee it. But let's say you have a medical emergency. You're in a serious, unexpected accident incapacitating you. Each of us wants the medical personnel treating us to have absolutely every piece of information about us on the spot. But as we all know, we can't have it both ways. All the data about us has a context. None of your business can swing quickly to take it all, please, in another. I was reminded of this in a recent homicide case when the murder victim's boyfriend claimed it couldn't have been him. His Fitbit showed he was sleeping at the time. If you don't have a Fitbit or most other exercise bands, I should say that many people leave them on 24-7. Many are shower-proof, some even swim-proof. The band's data is periodically downloaded, and while they're famously known for counting a person's daily steps, there's a lot more to the data collected. Information is data in context, and you review your exercise data in context as well, as you do any data you look at. Since data analytics has kicked in, exercise data also tells you whether it believes you've had a good night's sleep, including the number of hours you were sleeping. But it also records a fitful sleep. Perhaps you kept turning throughout the night, got up once, twice, three times, where you moved and resettled just a few times. The Fitbit, like others, records all that. It certainly knows when the exercise band is off and laying on the nightstand next to you. I can tell you for sure that when you're sleeping badly, you're not in the mood to read the data that tells you you didn't get a good night's sleep. No kidding? I didn't get a good night's sleep? And now you want to tell me exactly how bad it was? But when you get a good night's sleep, you don't care. But let's not forget, the data is there. At the same time, what does any exercise band not know? Who's wearing it? There's lots of legal ground to be covered here. And in this case, we're talking about voluntarily giving up data, data we collect on ourselves. But there's also data collected on us that we don't consciously realize. In the homicide case mentioned earlier, another person's cell phone, unwittingly to him, 
ping cell towers that matched all the germane places at all the germane times. You might say, well, power down your phone, fella, but that's data too. Do you often turn your phone off? What's the pattern on that? Do you turn it off every night? Change of pattern introduces a whole new context that has to be explained. And is there technology in your car that gives your location away? Does your tablet interface with a wide area network wherever you go and can tell where you've been and at what time? Or is it connected to your wireless phone service? And what about your smartwatch or what else is there that you just don't know? Steve Jobs famously said, never trust a computer you can't lift. It's become now, never trust a computer you can't see and don't know about. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Andreas Weigen, the former chief scientist at Amazon and author of Data for the People. And on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Marshall Summer, the director of the Rare Disease Institute and chief of genetics and metabolism at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C. We'll hear a strategy for the treatment of rare disease in the very young. Dr. Andreas Weigen starts his book, Data for the People, with a story about his father from nearly 70 years ago, well before anyone thought to put the word big next to data. I asked him to recount that story. Well, I wasn't around then. So the way I understand the story is that someday in the morning, some gentlemen with trench coats appeared at my father's little room in what was the Soviet part of Germany. And they said, my dad was a teacher, that they would have an award for him and would like him to come in person to receive that award. In the car he noticed that there were no doorknobs and he spent the next few years in prison and never really understood why. Then, after 89... My dad had already passed away. I asked for the records from the Stasi, the secret police. And they wrote to me and said, I'm sorry, we couldn't find your dad's records. They had been destroyed. But would you like to have your own Stasi file? And I thought that was remarkable. That for somebody, I was at that stage in the U.S., grad student in physics, that for somebody as unimportant as me... A little boy. 
a little boy. They kept records of who I met with. Now think how expensive that was at the time. It took more than 1% of all the working population working officially for the Ministry of State Security. Now, what the Stasi or the KGB wouldn't have gotten out of us under torture, we knowingly and willingly reveal on Facebook. Well, this is really an interesting concept. We've always had this situation, if you will, where organizations, be they government, be they for-profit, be they not-for-profit, they've always been operating off information. It's just what's happened is how much information can be generated. Yes, and trying to limit the generation of information, I think, is the wrong tree to bark up on. We all every day experience services which would not be possible without the constant creation of information. I took Google Maps, for instance, to come here to KQED. The question is, at this amazing moment in time, where the opportunities no generation had before us, what do we need to do so the generations after us will not be in trouble based on the information they create? And we have to rethink some concepts. For instance, the concept of ownership. We know what it means to own an apple. But do we know what ownership means about data? Well, let's take some data I create on Facebook by commenting on a picture you posted. It clearly isn't just me or just you who owns the data, but there's some co-ownership. And you might have heard about the story last year or two years ago about that monkey that took a selfie where the person who owned the camera was going to sue people who actually used that photo saying, well, monkeys can't own copyright. So there are very many interesting examples which are edge cases. But what I am really interested in is not the edge case, but the normal case. What is this new normality of data? And specifically there, what rights do we as individuals need to have? Rights ideally not against the data refineries like Google or Facebook, but with the data refineries. Well, that's a term that you use repeatedly throughout the book, and a lot of people haven't heard that. What's a data refinery? Okay, so I'm using that term because me and many other people have said data is the new oil. So that is the raw material, and to get value out of it, we need to refine oil. And similarly, to get value out of data, we need to refine data. So Google is a wonderful example of a data refinery because it takes all kinds of data from everywhere and helps me make better decisions. Do I turn left at the next intersection? That is the question I have, and Google gives me the answer based on data. So it refines the data to help me make better decisions. And many other companies do that, Yelp, Airbnb, and so on and so forth. So data refinery takes data and helps users make better decisions, where I think it's very important that that better is defined by the user and not by the refinery. 
Now, you're saying that the core issue is transparency in a sense, uh, and that we know who is collecting your data, and that we have some say in how our data is used. You write some say, you don't say complete say. Yes, because that would be an illusion. So part of the reason I wrote the book is to uh, show some of the illusions some people have, like the illusion of privacy. And I did an undergrad in physics and philosophy. So in philosophy, what's really important for me is to avoid conflicts, to avoid inconsistencies. So whatever people have, I think the first order check is, is it consistent or are there things that are in contradiction to each other? So for me, if I say, I don't want anybody to know where I am with a resolution of less than 100 meters, and then I order Domino's pizza, that poor delivery boy, he doesn't know where to drop the pizza. So I think I want people to become more data literate. I want them to understand what the consequences are. I want them to understand what is possible, what's plausible, what's implausible, and what's impossible. And not to be told by other people the wrong reasons, what the industrial military complex wants to do against them. I want the data they create to be data for the people and not to be data against the people. Well, you write about data literacy, digital literacy in one of your chapters. And within that, there was a really interesting section called, What's Your Data Worth? Worth to who? And and worth for what? Yeah. So many people have not thought about the value of data. For me, it's very simple. A piece of data is worth as much as it influences a decision. So if, let's say, there is a Yelp review, and I'm ordering that Kyang Kai in the restaurant because of that amazing review, there is a few cents of value in that review. Now, many people think, that picture of my dog, me and my dog, when I was a four-year-old child, that is worth so much for me. Well, if no decisions depend on it, then you are out of luck. <laughs> in, the, in the data economy, nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, it's non-trivial to establish what decisions really are based on data. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Andreas Weigand. Dr. Weigand is the former chief scientist at Amazon, and he currently consults with such diverse clients as Hyatt, Alibaba, MasterCard, and Lufthansa. He received his Ph.D. in physics from Stanford, and he's the author of Data for the People, How to Make Our Post-Privacy Economy Work for You. Well, what's it like to be the chief scientist of Amazon? What does that mean? It means that you can do lots of science. And science for me means experiments. And Jeff Bezos was looking for an experimental physicist, for somebody who can isolate conditions and run experiments so we can learn something. It was the largest data. lab at the time. But on data, not on, you weren't doing physics experiments. Oh, no, not physics experiments. I'm actually much more interested in people than in physics, to be honest. But physics is a great training to actually get the tools so you can do a good job in setting up experiments with people. 
And some of these experiments are trivial. For instance, if I show you item A and I show you item B, and you prefer A, I think I have an idea what item C I meant to show you, so you start preferring B over A. So basically, you could call it manipulation, or you could call it helping people make better decisions. <laughs> or you could call it just finding out how people operate. <laughs> that's, that's, that's science, observation. <laughs> yes, and uh, so a scientist is a person who takes ideas from the world, mostly from smart other people, but then figures out how to set up experimental conditions so you get, by what people do, the answer to the question you have. I personally believe that the questions often are much more important than the answers. It's easy to get answers these days. Just Google it. Whether it's right or wrong is a different question. But it's hard to formulate good questions. So one of the things I think which we are learning as society is that distinguishing between real news and fake news and between what the good questions are is part of what I consider data literacy. And we've heard various CEOs say, you have zero privacy, you have no privacy, get over it, it's not happening. And at the time, you know, this is several years back, people were very shocked at all this. And we've all become less and less shocked. And now, in the subtitle to your book, you say, we're the post-privacy era. Now, how do you define this post-privacy era? So actually what the subtitle says is the post-privacy economy. So for me, we still have the laws of economics. And we discussed earlier that the value of data is what somebody pays you for it. So it is the state is that we live in a post-privacy world. The way to deal with that is to write down economic equations, as we do in decision science, in decision theory. And that's what I mean by the post-privacy economy. It is not a black and white world. It is a world where we as individuals want to ask and want to ask for the right things for us, for the corporations to give to us. Now, we've talked a lot on Tech Nation about qualifying and quantifying our online social identities, if you will. And I keep coming back to the single biggest challenge we have, for me, is trust, establishing, maintaining, and even understanding trust. What is trust in this modern era? So I don't think that trust, the notion of trust has changed all that much since Plato's days. But what has changed is how we can establish trust through machines, cryptographically. If you think, for example, the blockchain. A blockchain is an object that has all the past interactions embedded in it. It is tamper-proof. That is something new. The Sumerians did not have the blockchain. If you paid the high priest enough, he will probably change the record. So now we will be living in a world, a world of so-called smart contracts and other things, where technology allows us to actually get trust in a much deeper level 
than only going to a central authority like a government or a Facebook and asking whether we can trust somebody. Well, you know, let me just interject here. You know, uh, for to the listeners that you can go in and pick up a, a document that's on your computer, make a little adjustment to it, save it again. That's not how blockchain works. Blockchain says, I want to save this document. And not only do I want to save this document, you save many copies of this document all over the place. You could not catch all the changes. So because you're never allowed to go in and change it, it's as if every time you wrote anything, it was there, and you have many, many copies. So you can never catch up with them and change every single one of the copies. It's an underlying technology. So some people say, oh, you mean Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just one application of the blockchain. And to me, this is a real change, as we've been talking about the right to be remembered. It's like, if you can put your data out and into a blockchain situation where it's copied many, many, many times, it really doesn't matter that YouTube lost all your stuff because if it, they, they would have copied it all over the place and it would be out there. It couldn't be lost as long as we have any kind of internet anywhere, any kind of storage facilities anywhere, any kind of cloud, true global cloud anywhere, right? Yes. So the preface in my book has a title, When Everything is Recorded. And I think we are not far from that situation. And for me, it's not only when everything is recorded, but when everything is remembered. And what that means to me, that is the basis of a different model of trust. And blockchain is just a technology which allows us to get to that. But does that mean that the role of humans is diminished? No. I think more than ever, it means to me that the role of humans is larger, that we are empowered to make better decisions now than before if we are clear of what weights we put at what actions, let's say, a person has done before. You were talking about human facial expressions and giving the example of you can actually scan a picture and tell whether a person truly is smiling or is just giving you the Pan Am smile, as you say, truly is sad or just looking sad. This is an area of information about us that we don't even realize. Yes. So there were a couple things in what you said. The first one is that of emotion recognition in videos. And in one of those videos from class, I had a company come to my class, Emotioned, that was bought by Apple last year, that in a video analyzes the faces of people and comes up with a few dimensions of you know, emotions. And there was that moment when the dean said, this is the best data science class on campus. And I was curious what emotion would say. And they had 100% truthful. So that was very uh, revealing, let's say. That was already five years ago. What we now have is much more interesting. Take the application called Face-to-Face that allows me to transform faces. So I would look just the way you look when you speak. 
when I speak. It is interesting. What now is truth? So we have had Facebook push the limits of what we believe. Adobe has a product um, for voice, which is a voice conversation editing tool where you could slip my voice onto what you are saying and I could slip my voice onto what you are saying. Wow. So I, you were interviewing me today. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Very interesting, Andreas. Well, of course, you've got a punchline here, and that is in needing to put controls in. You express them in the form of rights, and you have six rights. Let's go there. What are the rights that humans need to assert? So there are two rights, which are rights of transparency, that you can see your own data and you can inspect the refineries, which means to understand some summary statistics. For example, what is the return on data I getting at search engine one versus search engine two? And some people might say in this trade-off between getting stuff back and giving up more data, I'm happy to get back less if they take less of my data. So that is something where we want to empower the consumer to make a choice. And what I call inspecting the refineries is just like when you buy a car. They have these stickers which says how many miles per gallon that you can make a decision whether saving money or saving the environment is more important for you than driving this one gas, gasling, you know, what are SUVs, I think they call them here to show everybody who you are. So those are two rights of transparency, which assume the right to be remembered. I told you that story about my YouTube channel, right? And then there are four rights of agency, where actually there's something where you should have the ability to act upon your data, which just in very brief is that you can annotate data. Think what Amazon did basically from day one, that you can write reviews. That means you can annotate data. Then there's the right to blur your data. That's a very interesting one for me. That you determine, for instance, the geospatial resolution of some data about you. So when you are meeting some grinder date somewhere, then you probably want them to know exactly where in the bar you're standing. But maybe for other people, you might want just to know, I'm in the castle. That's all I want to know about me. That is the right to blur your data. Then we have the right to play with your data because I'm a physicist. I like to experiment. And I think there are some things where I know better what I want than the refinery. The example I'm giving is exploration versus exploitation. And the last one is the right to port your data that you, in a secure way, should be able to take your data from wherever they are to wherever you want to take them. These, in short, are the two transparency rights and the four agency rights I'm proposing in this book. Well, this is a fascinating book in that there's so much to think about, and I really do appreciate you coming in, Andreas. I hope you come back and see us again. I hope you'll have me back, and I also hope I will have my YouTube channel back. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. My guest today is Dr. Andreas Weigen. His book is 
Data for the People, How to Make Our Post-Privacy Economy Work for You. It's published by Basic Books. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Podcasts of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Marshall Summer, the director of the Rare Disease Institute and chief of genetics and metabolism at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Marshall Summer. He's the director of the Rare Disease Institute and chief of genetics and metabolism at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C. He's also a professor of genetic medicine and pediatrics at George Washington University Medical Center. With rare diseases, we often turn to genetics. I asked Dr. Summer, in the United States, how widespread is genetic testing in newborns? What I'd say is right now there's about maybe five to eight states that are starting to use very rudimentary DNA sequencing. Most of them are for immune disorders like SCID, um, but not widespread yet. Everyone keeps talking about it. And everybody keeps saying, gee, let's just sequence all the DNA and deal with it. But, you know, you're going to get 5,000 variants per child, a lot of which you're not going to know what to do with. Maybe okay. So, yeah, the answer will always be yes. You have something. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but you, you have something. You have something. Yeah. And, and, and yet, um, I was reading in some of your literature, over 7,000 rare diseases affecting some 25 million Americans. Right. That's basically one in 10, one in nine. Yeah. Well, it's, I guess the way to put it is every um, survey you do, what's always the most common grouping? It's always other. 
rare disease is the other of the medical world. So individually, not so many patients. But when you do have 7,000, it, it hits those big numbers pretty fast. Now, when a baby is born, is it obvious if there's a genetic disorder or not? Uh, about a quarter of the time. So about a quarter of the diseases leave some physical manifestation. Down syndrome is the most classic people would think of. You know, they have uh, facial features and physical features that are recognizable. You know, other patients will have things that may affect, you know, fingers, toes, things like that. A lot of them, though, aren't so obvious, particularly the biochemical disorders, the disorders that may affect the development of the brain. So a lot of them won't show up right away. That's one of the reasons newborn screening was so important for the biochemical disorders, because otherwise you'd just miss them until the patient got sick. Well, I, I was noting that you have 13 clinical geneticists, 12 genetic counselors, and two biochemical nutritionists. Correct. What is a biochemical nutritionist? So it's someone who's done their basic training in nutrition and dietary management. So in other words, they're the folks that know how to calculate what is in your diet, what is, you know, what are the protein contents, what's the basic molecular, and then take that and put it on steroids, not literally. Um, <laughs> Figuratively. So, right. Figuratively. So our head of our program has her Ph.D., in this very topic uh, from University of Wisconsin, and then her number two has a master's degree in that. So they have taken nutrition out to the very edge of the envelope and then gone beyond that. Well, give us an example. Let's say you don't produce a particular enzyme. Let's say right. you, you know, how does that, how do you have to match the food to, to right. that? Let's take the classic. Let's take the uh, sort of what everyone uses as the prototype biochemical disorder, which is PKU or phenylketonuria. That's one we've been screening for for 50 years now. Um, the treatment is basically dietary. So the only source your body gets of the amino acid phenylalanine, which is the toxin in this disease, is from the diet. You can't make phenylalanine on your own. But you've also, in this disease, have lost the ability to break down the phenylalanine you take in. So the way the diet is managed in this is the amount of phenylalanine in every protein that goes into that patient is carefully calculated. They know what each type of food has from not just how much protein it has, but how much of each amino acid it has in it. We know exactly how much it takes for a patient to grow and develop normally, because you got to have some. But they also know not to how much they can give before that patient exceeds their capacity to break it down. Now it gets complicated because each patient has a little bit different capacity. Some patients you can give more, some you can give less. So if you give too much, a bad thing happens. The brain gets damaged. If you give too little, a bad thing happens. The brain doesn't grow and the brain is damaged. So it's like walking a tightrope. That's one. That's the simplest one. It actually gets more complex. There's another uh, condition called maple syrup urine disease, which in spite of the fun-sounding name is not a fun disease at all. In that one, there are three amino acids you can't break down. So you have to run this juggling act with sort of like three chainsaws because you have to keep each of those amino acids just enough uh, to f grow the baby, to feed the baby, and throughout life. But too much, you go too far, and then suddenly they're sick. So from the standpoint, what I would say is our dietitians and nutritionists, and most of them are, are start off as RDs, um, would say this is sort of the uh, Super Bowl of nutritional management is trying to manage these patients. So it's not a medicine. What it is is literally getting what they need through food, and you know, have to know the biochemical makeup of just about everything. Correct. Uh, we call it nutraceuticals. 
So it's sort of it's not a pharmaceutical. It's not standard nutrition, which is each vegetables and you know not too much fat, not too much this or that. This is literally breaking down food into its biochemical components and working it from there. And they really start fun. as babies, yes. and they're constantly changing and growing and doing them. Pretty soon they go to school. Who knows what's going to happen there? Well, actually, what we know is a lot of times they don't do their diet. So that's, <laughs> teenagers are, like in the field of diabetes, actually, adolescents with diabetes are hard to manage. Um, adolescents with these biochemical disorders are hard to manage. Now, did I see this correctly? Like some 8,000 patients go through your clinic a year? Uh, this last year, about 8,500. So we're currently, uh, as far as we know, the highest volume clinic around. So we've, uh, at and least these are in all North kinds America. of disorders. Yeah, all, you know, we see a big chunk of all seven, I think the last count, 7,500 different rare diseases. The count keeps changing because we keep discovering new ones within this sort of genomic era here. But uh, we'll see a fraction of those every year in our patients. Now, you have to diagnose these. Correct. That's got to be tough. You know, interesting, the most frustrating part of the job is often getting to the right diagnosis. There's a concept called the diagnostic odyssey. Uh, there's some data out of Europe a couple years ago that may shed a little light on this. They looked at eight different rare diseases that were kind of across the spectrum of how they presented. And what they found is a quarter of patients took more than six or seven years to be diagnosed. Almost all of them had been given a wrong diagnosis at some point. You know, everyone likes to refer to, you know, these TV shows where the brilliant physician goes the aha and makes, uh, you know, the diagno brilliant diagnosis and then everything goes forward. And what happens in reality is it's a hit or miss thing. You know, someone will have an idea, everybody gets excited, it doesn't pan out, they go on to the next idea. One of the things we're really working a lot on is trying, we call it the diagnostic odyssey. We're trying to reduce that, and we're trying to use a combination of things. One is obviously sequencing, which still gives what you some... What is your DNA? <laughs> yeah, but still can give you a pretty vague answer. Um, but we're also trying to find some creative ways to apply uh, particularly digital technology. So looking at different companies, and I won't name any by brand, but ones that have developed expert systems for assimilating large quantities of data, which we're dealing with here across all these diseases... And then instead of working forward for what's going to happen, these things actually work much better. So if you know where you ended up and you have some data on the different starting points, you can start to put together patterns so that when a patient presents, we'd like to be able to say, okay, the least path to get to the diagnosis involves going ahead and doing this, this, and this. Applying those and seeing if we can't get the diagnosis sooner. The patients do better if there's a therapy available uh, then they can get under therapy faster, and it cuts down on the frustration and fear for these families. That's some of the toughest situations I see these families that are still searching for answers for their kids. All these kids probably have pediatricians all over the United States, if not all over the world. How do those pediatricians have a chance at guessing what the heck is wrong? They don't. And to <laughs> That's be, the to be blunt, <laughs> uh, there are some incredibly bright physicians out there in general practice. I'm married to one of them, so I have to uh, definitely throw in a plug <laughs> for pediatricians. Yeah. But what I've found is in a general pediatrics practice, you are seeing literally thousands of patients during a year. Trying to pick out which of those patients has an unusual condition, and then furthermore, going on figuring out exactly what it is, that's a big task. So what we try to do is we try to provide tools for pediatricians on how do you identify the ones that aren't fitting the norm. 
and then get them into the system so we can try to figure it out. Uh, and then we work very closely. We do, um, in the field of clinical genetics, just or rare disease, for instance, there are very few physicians right now. There's probably under 500 dysmorphologists, people who see things like Down syndrome. For the biochemical diseases, we probably have under 100 physicians in the field right now at a time when the diagnostic rates and everything are exploding. So the old model where, you know, you have the docs spread evenly across your geographic areas and um, you do, you know, your classic appointments, things like that, the wait times for most genetics practices are over seven or eight months. We've been able to reduce ours just because we have a lot more docs, but we're looking at things where we can get in early. So one thing we worked on developing was a phone app. So a physician who's seeing a patient and they're not sure what's going on, they have a relationship with us, they can take a few pictures of that patient. It comes into us, and what we'll do is give them an opinion on if we need to get this patient in quick. If there's something else that needs to be done, like go ahead and get an echocardiogram of this child's heart, go ahead and get an x-ray of this. So instead of the classic model, you wait, you come in, I say, well, now go get these tests and then come back in a month and then we'll go through that. We're trying to shave months off of that time. And it also uh, helps out with kind of a triage system so we can get the patients that really need to get in fast and fast, the ones that we can take a little bit longer to work on, do it that way. And then we just did something really fun recently, uh, working with uh, Dr. Marius Lingararu at uh, Children's National. Uh, he is an insanely good programmer, and we had the idea, there are some genetic conditions that you can recognize by facial picture, Down syndrome oh. being one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what we did is we started taking collections of pictures from patients with different syndromes. And to my surprise, actually, um, for Down syndrome, for instance, the um, software is about 98, 99% accurate off of a photograph from a smartphone, which is about as good as a clinical geneticist will do. And then we took uh, the next one to George syndrome, and now we're kind of running down the line there for these. So we're trying to put the tools in the hands of the docs out in the community so if nothing else, then get started. And then we did one version of this that was basically normal, not normal. So you see a child and you kind of go, hmm, wonder if something might be going on there. And you can take a picture and it'll give you a probability on what might or might not be going on with that kid. If they're fit in the norm. Yeah. It's all data. It, a lot of it is. It, I can't, but I've got to tell you, at the end of the day, the human touch is still important. Because when you start working with a family and you tell them, Something's going on. Something's not right here. That's you need you need to be there with them when you're doing that, as, at least as much as you can. And that's also where we try to pull the pediatricians in because they usually have a relationship with the family. They know them, but that, that's still the hard part of the job. It is. Well, with all of this effort, with all of this activity, you finally came together and formed a rare disease institute. Yes, we did. Well. In some ways, it's looking ahead, and in some ways, it's a little retro. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Uh, when I started in this field back in the 1980s in clinical genetics and metabolism, really all we saw were rare diseases. And then we had the whole genomic era. We started mapping all of these common diseases. And what I can say right now, I can't walk into any lab in any university, and there's not somebody playing with DNA in there. So... In many ways, the field of genetics became the field synonymous with the field of medicine. But we still had this huge group of patients with these rare medical conditions who need a medical home. We're diagnosing them in unprecedented numbers. 
So one of the things we realized is our clinical practice was based around these patients, but we hadn't really defined it. So that's where the idea for the Rare Disease Institute came out. So we sat down with the National Organization for Rare Disorders, NORD, which is the omnibus organization for all the patient advocacy groups. They have about 300 member organizations. They literally represent, I believe, millions of patients at this point in that, in that overview and said, okay, what can we do to provide a medical home where they can get consistent, predictable care? A place, you know, I hate to use it, a place where everybody knows your name, but a place where when you go to, they've heard of your disease before, they know what's going on, they're working on developing the best clinical standards for care. And that's what led to us forming the Rare Disease Institute. So we built a nucleus around our clinical genetics program and then have taken it kind of to this next level. And it focuses on a couple of things. One is what we talked about before the diagnostic odyssey, shortening the time between symptom presentation and actual diagnosis. And not only should that happen inside our Rare Disease Institute, but it should also happen when the physician first notices something's going wrong or the family first notices something is going wrong, they should be able to get into a pathway that's going to get them there quickly. The other thing is treatment standards. Um, You're making it up as you go. How could there be a standard? <laughs> Remember that well, one, two, It's a little better and... than that, Mark. <laughs> but okay. It feels like that some days. Um, what I can tell you is there are pretty well-established um, protocols for treating patients for only a handful of diseases. And here I'm going to borrow from my friends in the cystic fibrosis field. Uh, they're, I think, still the gold standard for how to do this properly. So when the CF Foundation started building their clinical centers of excellence, one of the things they realized is everybody was doing things differently. So they started pulling together what everyone thought was their best stuff, tried to pull it into a comprehensive or a, at least a consistent clinical protocol, and then started applying that. And then you start testing it. You say, okay, is this working? Is that working? All right, we noticed that the patients at site A are doing much better than the site patients at site B. What's different about the two? And that's what we're going to try to do for over 7,000 conditions. The CF Foundation's actually helping us out with that. They've been willing to share their secret sauce, for which I will happily give them a great shout-out, and I'm very grateful for. But what we're doing is creating an open protocol system so that physicians, families, nutritionists, genetic counselors, you name it, who are working with these patients can access them freely and openly, but also comment upon what happened. Because what will happen is, well, I did this part, and then the patient didn't respond as they responded this way. And so it gives you sort of a living document that you can continuously improve, continuously refine, realizing that some of the stuff you've got in there is wrong. I mean, I've been in the field of rare disease long enough to know that what I thought I knew in the early 1990s or late 1980s is not the same as how I treat a patient now. And these will have to be evolutionary documents, which is a little different from what you see in other fields of medicine. So one of my observations would be is rare disease really is emerging as a distinct field of medicine. And a couple of things about that that, that sort of makes sense. If I'm studying hypertension, I can pull data from literally tens of millions of patients. If I'm studying adult onset diabetes, same thing. So my guidelines, my statistics are all based on large population sizes. You know, there's these old grading systems for statistics, A, B, C, and D. You know, A is huge meta-studies of multiple large centers. B is 
huge, large center studies. C is um, usually published case series. In rare disease, we're always at the D level, which tends to be... Um, oh, them. Yeah. Um, I've often heard it referred to as eminence-based medicine instead of evidence-based medicine. But what you have to do is you pull together the physicians who've worked with these patients the most. You get what they think is their best. You pull it together. And then you start using that, but you test it. And it's got to be out there where people can see. And that's how, that's for some medical groups, that's actually not the easiest thing in the world. You don't want necessarily people looking to see how you're doing. You know, maybe your patients aren't doing well as on other site. And, of course, it's always my patients are sicker than theirs or things like that. But it requires a fair amount of self-examination and a fair amount of park your ego at the door. And then you have to be able to play nice with others. So... Rare disease is starting to emerge, I would say, as a distinct field of medicine in that regard. And you look at drug approvals, you look at clinical trials, you look at all the different things we do in rare disease, you have to use small population size statistics. Um, I can think of one disease I've worked with where we were testing a therapy on it, and we um, were able to draw our conclusions, but with only five patients, which if you're out in New York, you know, looking at general studies, you'd be appalled by that. Yes. But there were literally only five patients in the continental North America. So that was it. Literally, that was, instead of being a representative sample, that was actually a population study for those. So you have to think very differently about these rare diseases. The old magic uh, p-value of 0 0.05 for probability kind of just goes out the window sometimes. And, you know, the broad strokes that used to have to happen in my family, a portion of it picked up from New York and moved to Florida because of one of the members' medical condition, and that was like the only thing they could think to do. Right. And it didn't help that much anyway, but it was like you there was such a loss. Well, it's and that in rare disease, one of the things we've seen commonly over the years is, well, my child has disease X say it's a urea cycle disorder, take whatever one you want. I'm going to have to move to this city because the only person that knows anything about taking care of this disease is in that city. So we used to see a lot of geographic rearrangement based on that. And that's that's tough for the families. It's, um, it's tough on the kids. And it's not always necessarily the best way to do things. So one of the things we're trying to focus on with a, this Rare Disease Institute model is trying to take care of people in place. And with modern technology, you really should be able to do that much better than we used to. I mean, um, some of the limitations still come around billing and things like that. But, you know, we'll say that for another discussion another day. But there's no reason why you can't use telepresence to find out how a patient is doing. Um, we've spent a fair amount of effort on uh, developing in-home uh, diagnostic testing. So if you have, a, for instance, phenylketonuria, um, disease where you can't break down phenylalanine we talked about, um, an at-home phenylalanine monitor. So instead of having to drive three, four hours into a hospital that can test it, and there aren't that many, you can instead test it at home, get on the phone with your biochemical nutritionist and your doc, and then not have to come into a children's hospital or a you know, specialty hospital for adults, which are even rarer for these things. Um, now I'm going to ask you three questions all at once so you answer it. Any any order you'd like. All right, fair uh, enough. Fair enough. If you're a person out there with a family member uh, with a genetic disorder, if you are a doctor, 
and you want to know more. If you're a donor, potential donor, you have so much money you can't, you just don't know what to do with it, but you want to give it all these guys because they're working really hard. How do, how do all those people access what's going on now? Okay. Well, let's start with the patient and the family. That's that's the heart of the matter to begin with. There are a couple of good um, resources. One is the National Organization for Rare Disorders. They have literally information Nord, sheets. N-O-R-D. N-O-R-D. Yeah. yeah, they're easy to find on the web. Uh, they have literally information on almost every single rare condition that's designed around a patient consumer. They also have pretty good links to where these groups are organized, so you can find folks in the same boat you're in. Because one of the loneliest things I've seen are families who have been given one of these rare disease diagnoses, and they feel like they have no one to talk to. And they, they talk to us as physicians, but we're not, we haven't walked the path they've walked. So one of the things NOR does is they connect them with people who've walked that same path. And you'd be amazed the power of that for these families. Um, the other thing they have is usable information that family can then take to their physician because they may have made the diagnosis, but maybe the physician doesn't have so much experience. And that can provide guidance on where to connect to get best care, what maybe is known about taking care of those families, um, things like that. The next, this list is now take it to the physician level. Um, the NIH has spent a lot of effort on pulling together information around rare diseases. There's some excellent digital tools for that. Um, the I wouldn't say that the diagnostic part is quite where we want it yet. I think that's one of our big pushes the next few years is to give them really powerful diagnostic tools. So my physician, my patient presents with this. Here's where we're going to go. But as far as getting information on these, there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, Dr. Google, which I hate to use that term, but can hook you up with a lot of those different resources. So there's some very good ones at NIH and some of the major medical centers. The other thing is don't go alone into the woods. If you have a patient with one of these rare diseases, communication is your key. Find the person who wrote the article on that. And they'll usually answer your email. Um, find them, call them, you know, bug them, say, I have a patient with this, I need help, or I need to send them to you um, for care. And what you'll find is people will respond, people will reach back, and so they don't have to be alone either. Because as lonely as it is for the parents, it actually can be kind of lonely for the docs too sometimes when they're trying to make tough decisions. Um, I'll be happy to put up our uh, web address for those donors with way too much money who want to uh, be involved in that. And actually, that's one of the keys. Uh, rare disease care, it's not really procedure-based. Uh, it doesn't fit a lot of the classic models. Most medical centers tend to run these programs at a loss. Um, ours, our Rare Disease Institute, we provide, like I said, excellent care for these 8,000-plus patients. But it's, you know, you got to make ends meet. So if I were going to invest my donor dollars, one thing I would do is in the systems that work on developing the clinical protocols. That's one place. And we got to have a standard one. So we really kind of need one system for that, which we're working on. Um, I would also look at, you know, improving that diagnostic path, you know, make it shorter, make it faster. And probably there's a lot of efforts that can be brought to that. It may not be one answer. It may be several answers for that. Um, and then also providing backup for families who just can't make the ends meet anymore. One of the things we try to do is create a testing fund. If we have a family we're trying to do testing for and the family's insurance won't cover it and they don't have the means to do that, we try to scrap and scrabble and find ways to 
get that covered so that family can get the diagnosis they need to move forward. So there's lots of places that they can help. We'll not only put the link with your interview, I promise to put it prominently. So anybody comes out to our Tech Nation page, they'll go, there, I remember that. And yeah, yeah, go on here. It's very gracious of you. Thank you. Well, we'll do some good here, I hope. We'll do some good. So diagnostics will be a big area, particularly starting to use smart technology. So that's one of the areas where I think there's a lot to be gained. And I think, I think digital technology is getting to the point where that's really going to be very useful for us. If you can play Jeopardy and play chess, you can play rare disease. Um, so potentials for therapeutics around genetics, um, the technologies. The other thing that's kind of coming along that people don't think about as much are cellular technologies, and not so much as a therapy, but for understanding. So um, different groups are now taking cells from the patients and using those to better understand the disease. Um, I mean, you know, with, you can convert skin cells back into stem cells and then create other tissues. It's not quite as good as the original, but you can make neural cells, you can make liver cells. And the level it's at right now, you can't really use that therapeutically. But what you can use it for is to actually look at that cell in very clean conditions and say, what does it do with this disease? And sometimes understanding the basic molecular basis for a disease is the first step to really coming up with a clever treatment for it. So that's another big area for me. Oh, you got nothing to do. No. Just, nah. No, I've got, I, I, I can honestly say I think I've got good job security. <laughs> yeah, I think you do. I think you do. Marshall, always the pleasure. Please come back. See us anytime. Delighted to. Thank you so much, Mara. Dr. Marshall Summers, the director of the Rare Disease Institute and chief of genetics and metabolism at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C. Dr. Summer is also a professor of genetic medicine and pediatrics at George Washington University Medical Center. More information is available at childrensnational.org. Then search for Rare Disease Institute or on technation.com where you'll find a direct link. For Technation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.